So we get up to the target that Bradley maneuvered into position, and it was like this tank round just flies out of nowhere. And then you start to hear like tink, 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 and the ramp goes down. And we peel out, and I've ran towards the target building. And as I like clear all the stuff, there's smoke and stuff, and I just get this weird feeling like not everybody's with me. So I kind of like take a knee. And I'm like waiting. Nobody's running by me, and I'm realizing you hear like snap, snap, snap. And then all of a sudden, like I get the squeeze, and it's Mark behind me. So we go up to the front door. So I ran up, kicked it open, and it propels me past the first two rooms. I'm like on my gun the whole time, and I just give the gun upstairs. And as me and Chucky get to the top of the stairs, this machine gun fire just comes in, dude, and it comes in heavy. You could tell it was really close. And all of a sudden, you hear man down, like dire man down. And then he goes, we need to form it down here now. So I just, it's like three bounds down the stairs, and I get down to the stairwell. As we're coming down, I go to grab Mark, and another bunch of machine gun fire comes down through there. So I kind of like duck out of the way, and Mark is, dude, he's down. And Nick, our EOD guy, is returning fire. I catch Nick's eye. It looked like sheer terror, um, the look that he gave me. So grab Mark, and I drug him around that little alcove, and I just start cutting Mark's gear off. Um, you know, it was pretty apparent that he took one round right to the teeth. I could see the whole left side was, um, was already bruising. You could see it all on his cheek. Um, his face was like white and Mark was tan. I get the gear off and dude, I'm just doing like a quick assessment. And dude, there's nothing, man. I was like, we need a Kazovac now. It's like, all right, it's outside. So I go and I sling Mark up on there and I start carrying him, dude. And it... It's heavy. You know what I mean? Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me today, a retired Navy SEAL and author, Jack Carr. Uh, Jack, how's it going? It is going great. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, I'm glad we were finally able to catch up and and do this. Um, I got a lot I'd like to talk to you about. in, including your novels and and what you have what you're working on and what you have coming up so can we start with sort of in the beginning and and what motivated you to join the navy and then if we can kind of walk through your career a little bit yeah let's do it um yeah early on in life i knew i was going to join the military and i think that's because i grew up surrounded by relics of a grandfather who served in in world war 2 and although he didn't make it back he was killed off okinawa in 1945 when wow. two kamikazes hit his aircraft carrier um, i grew up surrounded by the like the silk maps they used to give aviators back then uh, they were silk so that if, avi- if they hit the water they wouldn't disintegrate like paper would um, medals his his wings old black and white photos of his squadron and he flew the uh, the Corsair, the F4U Corsair, which is the the one that had the wings that that fold up. There was a TV show called Black Sheep Squadron in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, starring Robert Conrad. Um, and I just knew I was always going to join the military. And I think it was because of that that early influence um, growing up with the idea, essentially, of my grandfather as a hero. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do in the military exactly until I – well, I guess I, I – guess I, did because I always gravitated naturally towards books and movies that had special operations type theme to it. But also very early on, I saw a movie called The Frogman. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, it's an old black and white movie that showed these guys crawling up over the beach and putting obstacles, uh, explosives on obstacles in advance yeah. of conventional force landings and um, asked my dad, hey, who are these guys? And 
he said, those are frogmen, which was the name of the movie. And uh, went down to the local library to do some research with my mom, who was a librarian, and found out what seals were. And whether it's true or not, the, the, my takeaway at age seven was that, hey, these guys are, are pretty tough and the, the training looks, uh, looks hard as well. So I'm in. Let's do this. So at age seven, they pretty much had me. So by the time that you had gone to the recruiter's office, you had been preparing for this for a while. Pretty much my whole life, yeah. And uh, and back then there was not much written about special operations. There was you know a few mentions in different chapters and books. And so this is like early '80s up until like 1990. Um, there was. Uh, just a, a couple of videotapes that showed guys in Vietnam that were uh, shooting the stoner out there, the frogmen just getting rocking and rolling with that stoner. And uh, so I knew that's the direction I was going. But back then, you could essentially read everything that was ever printed about special forces and SEALs. Uh, but, uh, did, you know, now you couldn't possibly do that with the Internet. Just type in Navy SEAL or type in you know, Army Special Forces or whatever, Army Ranger, whatever it is, and you're going to get more than you could ever possibly read or digest. But back in the 80s, you could actually read it all. And uh, and so I did all, did my research. I think I knew more than the recruiter did when I finally walked in there <laughs> to uh, to sign up. And I, I essentially told him what, what program I was going in for. And, uh, yeah, I um, wanted to make sure that I also – came in enlisted because I wanted to be a sniper and typically in my research anyway, said that officers weren't snipers. So, um, I enlisted first, did my first six and a half years enlisted and then went to OCS and came right back to the SEAL teams as an officer, but ended up doing 20 years, um, and had a good solid run there. And, uh, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have served with the guys that I did and, uh, got to do uh, some of the things that I, that I got to do downrange. So, uh, all in all, I feel it was a, uh, a good solid run. By the time that you signed up and you were at the recruiter's office, did they already have it to where you can go sh through basic and then straight into um, selection? Uh, they did. They're moving that direction. It's not like it is today where you go to boot camp and then you go right to BUDS. Um, well, you do a little stop doing some uh, some training that are, is specific to get you ready for BUDS. Uh, but back then, you did, it was a program called the Dive Fairer Program. And that means you went to boot camp. And all it essentially did was give you uh, the chance to try out for buds, which I didn't know, but everybody really gets anyway. But uh, if you sign on for six years, you got uh, a chance, you got a guaranteed chance to try out at boot camp. Um, so essentially they get you for an extra two years, uh, <laughs> by creating this program, even though everybody got a chance to try out anyway. But, uh, yeah, went in, did, uh, did that and I uh, went to intelligence school because you had to have an MOS back then. Um, we call it an A school, but uh, there were certain ones that qualified you for for buds, and intelligence was one of them. So did I think it was 16 weeks out in Damnick, Virginia, for intelligence school, and then showed up at buds and uh, yeah, went through, got to my team in October of '97. Oh wow! So <clears throat> a few years later is when things really got going and and. Uh... Afghanistan and then later in Iraq and, and elsewhere. Um, That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was my second deployment. Uh, we were two weeks into my second deployment when uh, September 11th happened. Oh, so you were overseas? 
Yep. Yeah. We were already there two weeks into it, expecting to, uh, go to, well, we were in Guam. I think we were expecting to go do some, some training with the Thai seals in Thailand, uh, maybe hit Australia, one of those normal, uh, pre September 11th, Naval special warfare, PACOM deployments. And it's, uh, what train changed obviously with, uh, September 11th. And we, uh, it was about midnight in Guam. I remember, and phones started ringing up and down the hallways and, uh, in our barracks and guys started banging on doors and, we had one TV down in the barracks, so we were in the basement of the barracks. So we went down and watched the Twin Towers fall on TV. Yeah, that was a crazy moment. Um, I, I was in Manhattan when it happened. Oh wow! No yeah. kidding. Yeah. Where were you? I was in school actually. Um, wow. I think I was in eighth grade at the time. Oh man, youngin. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously, there's a lot that I would never forget about that day, and. But the one thing that always sticks with me is the smell. So I, I, at the time, I was living on the opposite end of uh, the island, so on the northern tip. And um, you can see the huge smoke uh, clouds just, you know, for days. But the smell was there as well. And it just kind of smelled like uh, burning metal. And uh-huh. um, for for whatever reason, I, that, I, that always sticks with me, and I never forget how that smelled for I would say maybe a week or so afterwards. Um, wow! And then, yeah, that's a smell is something that uh, it's very powerful. Yeah. Uh, sense and we can take you right back to a time and a place without even knowing it when you get a get a smell of something that uh, uh, from your past. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So then, you know, you you guys are on a deployment. After this took place, did that change everything or did you guys kind of go through your routine? No, it changed everything. Um, uh, no one really knew what to do right off the bat from I'm talking senior level leadership. Um, and of course, we're at the at the tail end of, of that chain of command. So we were just waiting to go. So we got palletized, got everything loaded up, ready to go, waiting for a plane to come. And we thought we were going to go right to Afghanistan. But um, uh, I think even when we were on the plane flying, we thought we were going there. But we ended up going to Kuwait and the guys that were in Kuwait doing shipboarding operations at the time, which was Team 3, they ended up going uh, into Afghanistan and we took over their shipboarding mission uh, to enforce the UN embargo against Iraq. So uh, that was the, that was the only uh, the only shipboarding operations I did in my 20 years in the military were, was that time frame. So I'm actually grateful for it today because uh, it was an interesting experience. But at the time, you want to be in Afghanistan. Uh, you, before that, you wanted to be doing the shipboardings because that was all that was going on. And then after September 11th, you didn't want to be doing shipboardings. You wanted to be in Afghanistan. So uh, I did find myself there not too long after. But um, but initially it was uh, doing the shipboarding operations. Yeah, I had a guy on the show previously. Um, maybe it was probably over a year ago, but he was one of the uh, the seals uh, on one of those shipboarding operations. Um, oh, nice! Who'd you have? His name is Chris Osmond. Oh yeah, yeah. He was. He, we took over for them, and they went into went into Afghanistan. So I've known Chris for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. Um, <clears throat> yep, he's great. So it, it's it's really interesting. I remember reading, um, like reading different books where guys were talking about their experiences in Afghanistan. And um, one of the things I read, I, I think it was, this This might have been from a Green Beret or this might have been a collection of stories from different special operations guys. But I remember they were talking about, they were having, a, there was some kind of convoy moving, a, a big convoy, and this is very early on. And some of the Green Berets were saying, 
you know, where, or they, they had some kind of objection to SEALs being there. And basically the basis of what they were saying was that the SEALs should be, you know, doing things that revolve around the water, basically. Is that a, a misconception that people have had for years? Have you experienced anything like that? Uh, well, I haven't experienced it personally, but um, yeah, SEAL, of course, stands for sea, air, and land, the the three mediums in which we operate. But I heard somebody say it a long time ago, and I forget exactly who said it, but uh, they said, if we have water in our canteens, we are in a maritime environment. Yeah. <laughs> so I always I always like that. Yeah. But no, I, have, I haven't, uh, yeah, I haven't uh, uh, had to deal with any uh, uh, personal uh I haven't had to answer for that. It's been fairly clear since September 11th that uh, that all of us, you know, all special operations in general, goes to where the fight is and figures right. it out. Right. Absolutely. So you you said you were in the teams for six years uh, enlisted, um, and it was, was it during this time that you went to sniper school? Yep. So it was right after that deployment. So I did one pre-September 11th deployment, uh, came back, went to sniper school, free fall school, uh, did my second workup and then deployed. Um, and it was during that workup that I put in a package for OCS. And, uh, you know, looking back had September 11th really happened, uh, January 11th of that year, then I probably would have not, uh, would not have put in a packet for, for OCS. I would have just stayed enlisted and, uh, and kept getting out there and, and getting after it. But as it, as it was, I put in a package in the spring of 2001 and, uh, got accepted. Uh, I think I can't forget if it was before we left on deployment or during that deployment, but, uh, regardless when we got back, um, I volunteered to go back overseas, quickly before September, before my OCS class started up and, uh, then went to three months of OCS, which exa is exactly the same as boot camp, meaning you're, uh, um, folding underwear, folding t-shirts, making your bed, shining your shoes, which all somehow, uh, qualify you to lead people into <laughs> combat. Um, so it was pretty useless and then just went right back to the team and, uh, and then started getting after it again. So as a, <clears throat> You know, obviously being enlisted and being an officer, you, you get to see both sides of the coin and uh, and some of the differences in the role and things like that. Um, so I just wanted to ask you if you could answer, which sniper school did you go to? Did you go to the Navy sniper school or? Yeah, the Naval Special Warfare one. I think it was uh, 73 days. I think, but, um, yeah, it was, a it, yeah, it was good. I've wanted to do that my, my whole life and it's, uh, it, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Okay. And then, and was it true from, cause obviously you, you said this is what you've learned, uh, pre Navy, but that officers can't go to sniper school. It's not exactly true. Uh, I don't know about the other services, but for NSW, uh, and I can only speak for my time, time there, uh, they, an officer would go through usually a junior officer every now and again. And I thought, actually think it's a good idea because then officers can see the proper utilization of snipers, um, and also develop closer relationships to the, the guys and, and the equipment that, uh, they're using for those types of missions. So, um, so junior officers do go every now and again, but the vast majority of people that go through are enlisted. Yeah. That's something I've, I've read and, and heard guys talk about over the years, uh, where someone who's in a position of command and, and who's responsible for giving the, the go-ahead to move troops and things like that, they won't understand the capabilities of a sniper and how to use them properly. Is that something that you've dealt with in your career? 
Well, first, I, you know, I think it's possible to uh, to understand without having gone to sniper school. All you need to do is, uh, you know, study the issue, uh, understand the weapon systems, understand the capabilities, talk to snipers. Um, so, so I think it's un- you can understand how to utilize um, that uh, uh, that capability without having gone. Um, but it, you know, sure, it sure helps to have gone there and also it, it helps with that trust with that sniper team or with that sniper that you're talking to because you have something in common it's not uh it's not just hey you went out to the range for a day with the snipers and got to shoot a little bit is that hey you went through that same training and you passed that training so you have that bond so in that respect i think it's important but it's tough to balance because you know a lot of guys look at it as hey this officer's taking an enlisted guy's slot at sniper school mm. um and there's something to that to that too um but uh but having seen both sides i think it is beneficial to have because you never know where that officer is going to end up and you never know <laughs> what he's going to be uh doing or in charge of farther down the line uh and how, how that can help uh not just snipers but the force as a whole so um so i do think it's beneficial to uh to get some junior officers through there every now and again so a lot of i mean just for most people on the outside looking in you know, when you think of snipers, obviously with um, the success of Chris Cow's book and the movie and, uh, and and several others from different services and things like that, when people think of snipers, they just think of, you know, a guy shooting someone through a high-powered rifle. And, and that is a, a part of it. But also a large part of it is the gathering of information and, and things like that. Uh, can you talk about some of that? Sure, sure. Actually, let me go back real quick to the the earlier question about did I ever run into somebody that didn't understand the capability? Um, and I'll say that uh, that my example is of a, a guy of a colonel who um, understood the capability quite well and utilized us effectively. But it was all because of that relationship that we had together. So Army Colonel, um, as far as I know, he hadn't been to been to sniper school, but for a campaign to retake a city in Iraq um, and underst- and just sitting down, talking to him, building up that trust and talking about, hey, we don't just bring these rifles that can reach out and touch somebody from, from vast distances. Uh, we can also, you know, we're also JTACs and we can control air power. We can do some pre-planned air as part of this campaign. So now you have this sniper team. All of us are JTACs. All of us can help out there as well. So, um, so really it's just building trust with people that you're going to be working with so that they understand your capability so that you can uh, work well together to accomplish the mission. Um, and f- just yeah. for, quickly for the audience who won't know what a JTAC is, can you explain that quickly? I think it's Joint Terminal Air Controller. Some of the acronyms are – I kind of flushed them when I left the military. But it's uh, someone that can control aircraft over a radio, uh, has done a certain number of calls in a, a schoolhouse-type environment and out uh, uh, to get signed off. And you have to keep those up uh, like you would like – your, like your driver's license. You have to go in and renew it every now and again. So same thing. You have to do a certain number of calls. I think it's per year. Um, and I think you have to go back to the school every now and again uh, to get recertified. But I'm not sure about that. But uh, essentially, it's a qualification that allows you to control aircraft. So this – so snipers are already uh, – snipers and SEALs, but just in general, snipers are already force multipliers. Having that ability to call in um, – you know, bombs from an aircraft that would make you even more of a force multiplier because one person can bring a lot to bear on the enemy. That is correct. That is correct. And I think this, uh, uh, it was a, uh, 
cavalry division. They had a couple JTACs, but uh, just in our small group, we brought a bunch more because we could all do it. So it's uh, a very good qualification to have. Yeah, so then <clears throat> a lot in Iraq, there was a lot of um, different of the different services working together to clear objectives, take cities and things like that. Um, so a, a lot of the stuff you guys were doing, aside from the shooting part, is just is basically getting uh, a lay of the land and, and things like that. Yeah, you get that, you know, well, you had some corporate knowledge uh, because we've been going in on this train, deploy, train, deploy treadmill uh, since September 11th. So a lot of guys have experience in the platoons now. And so if you're a new guy coming in, you're getting that experience through those guys who've been downrange multiple times before uh, right away uh, throughout your workup. You you hopefully know where you're going, although that that can change based off, uh, uh, you know, national level priorities and, and a changing geopolitical landscape. But um, uh, let's just say that you do know where you're going. Well, you have that whole workup, which in our case is about 18 months if things go as planned. Um, and you know, OK, I'm going to Afghanistan or I'm going to Iraq or I'm going to the southern Philippines, wherever it is. And you can start training up and tailoring your training uh, for those environments, um, and not just the, uh, your, your, your standard operating procedures, but also who you're studying, who are the personalities down there? Who are we currently hunting downrange right now? What does their organization look like? Uh, where does it get its financing? Where's it getting there? Where are they getting their IEDs? Um, how are we going to help dismantle it when we take over from the team that's there now? So uh, a lot of the intelligence side of the house, you can also build up. So the first day you arrive in country, you're not, you're not like, Hey, who are we, uh, who are we going after? What's, uh, what's going on out here? Right. So it's something that you're, you're, you're weaving in to your training. Right. Right on. Okay. So you served for a total number of 20 years. Yep. 20 in a wake up. Okay. And you're, and so then obviously the majority of that time is, is, um, after September 11th, uh, there was a lot of fighting going on and, uh, a lot of things going on worldwide as well. I mean, just, um, I mean, just on Easter, uh, there was a, a series of bombings across Sri Lanka. Right. Uh, you know, it's a terrible tragedy. A lot of people were killed and, um, just before we got on, I was making a cup of coffee and I'm I'm just kind of scrolling through uh, the news app on my phone and I'm seeing that they are saying that the the group responsible had some kind of uh, outside help. So from somewhere outside of Sri Lanka. And this is just something from talking to different people and, and reading a lot about it. Um, I feel like people aren't aware of, of how... Uh, connected some of these terrorist groups are globally. And, and I think, uh, you know, now with some of the things that are coming out of what happened in Sri Lanka, uh, people are going to understand that a little more maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a different, different geopolitical landscape than we had in uh, September of 2001 or, you know, the year before in 2000 or in 1999, 1998, uh, things have evolved. The enemy has adapted and evolved. Um, you know, we used to think about the enemy in Afghanistan in a cave, really planning 9-11. And that's, you know, that's not really the, the case, you know, it was planned. Um, yeah, maybe the idea was hatched there and in the Southern Philippines, but uh, the, the training and everything else happened in Germany, uh, in California, in Florida, in Arizona, um, right here 
under our noses uh, for the most part. And now you don't need that cave. You don't even need that safe haven today because you have you can do it virtually. So instead of being with someone uh, in, let's say, Florida or Hamburg or uh, an island in the southern Philippine island chain uh, you know, or anywhere in Afghanistan, you know what? We can be in a chat room. We can be online and uh, we can plan. We can learn. We can adapt um, all virtually. So it's, uh, things have definitely morphed since September 11th and, uh, uh, particularly how and how the enemy trains and how the enemy plans. Um, so yeah, the, the cyberspace is, uh, is, which is vast is, uh, there's a lot of places people can hide out there online and they don't need a cave. Right. And, you know, with, with the, the emergence of ISIS and, um, you know, how quickly they were able to take land and territory in Iraq and Syria. And then the way that they um, sort of, they, they were like using a, a content creation method for how they were posting and, and using some of the videos and, and material that they were creating to recruit people. Um, but w- what a lot of people don't understand is, uh, before ISIS, you know, Al Qaeda was doing that in Iraq. It's just they were selling like the VHS uh, at the markets, and and they were doing all these brutal things. They just weren't as tech savvy. Um, so these things been going on for quite a while. It just wasn't until ISIS came along that some people were kind of um, hip to it. Yeah, no, they, ISIS definitely took it to the next level. That's that's for sure. Um, and the enemy's always been better at us uh, at the at the PR side of this. They've been we were a huge bureaucracy, both the U.S. military um, and uh, and our well and our political uh, system that uh, that controls the military. So it's uh, it's tough to move a bureaucracy as large as the United States government. Now, ISIS, Al Qaeda, uh, other terrorist groups are much more agile uh, and. And they can think things through in the term in terms of, hey, what what's the outcome? What do we want? Uh, and then how do we get there? So let's back plan, not just from a certain mission like we might. We might say, OK, we're going to go capture so and so. OK, what's his pattern of life? OK, let's figure all that out. Put together the target package. Let's go get him. Um, so the enemy would say, hey, what do we want to get out of this from a PR standpoint? OK, then what to get that? What do we need to do? Is it a bombing? Is it uh, is it faking a bombing that the Americans did? Uh, what do we need to do to get to that outcome, to get to that PR, marketing, recruiting outcome, and then work backwards from there? So they've they've always been better at that than than, than we have. Yeah, I, I always found it kind of strange um, that they were, that they were able to to use, utilize all this propaganda and stuff like that and. It seems like they weren't being countered, at least at first. You know, I'm not sure how things evolved over time, but, um, and I think it's it's also a tactic that is used. Like, um, for example, there's a lot of people who were against the, the drone program in Pakistan. Uh, you know, a lot of, or I'm not going to say a lot, but there were a certain number of civilians who were killed. In these drone strikes, but the the drone strikes were targeting some really bad people, and these guys who were being targeted, they know they're being targeted, so they purposely uh, remain amongst civilians and things like that. And that's also a tactic that you see uh, the Israelis have to face quite often, and it seems to be really successful. Um, and I, I'm just just looking at the the bigger picture and trying to 
look at all the information, uh, it, it seems kind of strange to me that it always seems to work, at least for a large uh, percentage of the public. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very true. Like we, uh, we scramble to um, uh, to get our public affairs officers out there in response to something. So we're very reactionary uh, in that sense. Uh, the opposite is true of the enemy. Uh, they also know that uh, how much we value life and how much uh, collateral damage uh, is on our minds. We think about that sort of thing. Um, and I mean, a lot of the technology in our, our weapon systems is there to reduce that collateral damage. Uh, so they know that, that we are very sensitive to that and we do everything we possibly can to avoid it. So uh, they play right into that um, by being around children, by being around women, being around uh, civilians, non-combatants. Um, and, uh, and that's that's just part of part of how they how they do it. Um, and the drone drone program, it's a tough one. Drone program, and I'm not saying I, I definitely do not have all the answers. Um, and and there might not be uh, any really good answers to some of these things because uh, the the drone that that can be used as a recruiting tool for them as well. Um, whether it's uh, you know whether it is whether it is collateral damage or not, and it's deciding hey where is that tipping point where. Um, Killing that person that you're after uh, is worth it. Is more valuable than the other re- than the recruiting effort that we're playing into uh, that the enemy exploits uh, to the best of their ability. So that's a that's a tough one. So you have um, you've written one book and you have another one on the way. Correct. Yep. The Terminal List is my first one, and it's fiction. It's uh, 100% fiction that came out last year, and uh, it's been just uh, exceeding expectations on all fronts. So uh, I could not be more pleased with uh, with how it's going and how it's been resonating with people. And I think it's doing so well because even though it's 100% fiction, the feelings that the protagonist has are drawn from emotions I have related to real-world experiences. So although I wrote 100% fiction, the emotions that the protagonist feels are real emotions. So it resonates as very authentic. And that's because those those emotions are real. Um, same thing with the with the second novel that comes out in July. And have you released the, the title of that yet? Like the name? Of yes, it? that's True Believer. Okay. And uh, the first one, I just wanted to make sure I was honoring my former security clearances. So I submitted it to the, the Department of Defense. They have an office called the Office of Prepublication and Security Review. And even though it's f- fiction, uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, there wasn't anything in there that could possibly help the enemy. So I submitted it and uh, they they advertised 30 days in a turnaround. And in the first book, it's like 45 days. And so I thought that was pretty good for a big government bureaucracy and they took out nine sentences i think it was so i left those redacted blacked out in the novel because i didn't know hey, if i write around this is that okay or what do you do so i just left them blacked out in the novel uh second one true believer the was supposed to come out in april but because uh the they did they, they take a little more than 45 days this time around they took almost seven months uh to do their review and they took out i think 57 sentences this time and a couple full paragraphs. So, uh, so that they took out a little more of this, which sounds like a lot, but in a, a long novel, it's really not, not that much, but I left that redacted in the second novel as well. And that one will come out July 30th. And so what inspired you to write? Because often there will be people with your experience and backgrounds and they'll write sort of a book about their life and their experiences or just one small piece of it. Uh, so what motivated you to write 
Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to do this since I was a little kid. About the same time I uh, knew I wanted to be a SEAL, I also knew that I wanted to one day write fiction. And I think a lot of that is because in the 80s, like I mentioned, there was hardly anything written about SEALs, but there was stuff written in fictional novels. Uh, protagonists of novels in the 80s, they had backgrounds as SEALs or Special Forces guys or uh, CIA paramilitary officers. And I just naturally gravitated to those novels because the protagonists, the main characters, had backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. Um, it was David Morrell. He created the character Rambo back in 1972. But in 1983, he had a book called The Brotherhood of the Rose. Uh, it's an amazing novel. And he mentioned seals there in fiction for the first time that I'm aware of. Uh, I think Clive Cussler might have done it earlier in Raise the Titanic, but I didn't read that until later. But I read all these guys like David Morrell, like Nelson DeMille, uh, Stephen Hunter, J.C. Pollock, A.J. Quinnell, Tom Clancy, who created the the character, uh, obviously Jack Ryan, but he also had John Clark, who was a former SEAL and has an, had an origin story that came out called uh, Without Remorse, which is one of my favorites. Um, so I did a ton of reading growing up and I didn't really think of it like this at the time, but now that was my early education in storytelling. Um, later on, I discovered Vince Flynn and Daniel Silva and Brad Thor, uh, and then today Mark Graney. But, uh, that foundation in the the fictional thriller genre, when I add on my professional study of terrorism, of insurgencies, uh, and then add to that my experience, it seems like I've been training for this my entire life. So uh, this next chapter in life after transition from the military is uh, you know pursuing the profession of a writer. And I feel extremely fortunate that the first book has done so well and that the second one is coming out soon. So how long have you been... Uh retired from the Navy? Uh, I got out in the summer of 2016. So what is that? A couple of years now. Okay. And, and how has that process been for you transitioning? Before we get back to the conversation with Navy SEAL Jack Carr, I just want to give a quick thank you for the sponsors for this episode, Blinkist. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. A lot of people work and have a side gig or work two jobs or they have to take care of the family when they get home from work. So you feel like you don't have enough time to sit down and relax and read and develop yourself. Well, there's an app that I highly recommend. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and it basically condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read it or you can listen to it. Blinkist is made for people like you who want to get the main talking points of the book quickly without having to sit and spend the time reading the entire book. With the audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy you can finish four books in a day. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library. From self-help, business, health, and to history books. I like Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I feel like I have a better and more well-informed opinion on the topic. I use Blinkist when I'm making breakfast in the morning before I start my day, or when I'm ending my day at night, I like to read and learn, and I think that helps me fall asleep. I've read and listened to these books, and I highly recommend you check them out. The first book is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. The second book is called Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think by Von Harris Rosling, Ola Rosling, Anna Rosling Runland. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash recon to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash recon 
to start your free seven-day trial. Now we'll get back to the conversation with Jack Carr as he talks about his transition out of the Navy. Yeah, so I think for me, I was fortunate in that I knew exactly what I wanted to do next, um, which was right. Uh, I think a lot of guys take some take some time figuring that out uh, because they don't have experience in the um, profession that they think they want to go into, which is why uh, mentorship programs and internships are so important as guys are, are getting out of the military so they can kind of test the waters in a few different things and see, hey, is, is law really what I want to get into? Do I really want to go to law school? Or, hey, do I really, do I really want to be a doctor? Or, hey, do I really want to start this, this small business? Or, hey, do I really want to jump into the, into the tech world? Um, whatever it may be, um, they, guys have a hard time finding that next mission in life. And during my last couple of years in the military, I got to see that. So I saw guys that struggled with transition, struggled with finding that purpose, struggled with finding that, that next mission. So um, for me, I identified that early, identified what was important which allowed me to say yes or no to different options and opportunities as they presented themselves. Um, but I, I, I feel extremely fortunate to have, well, to escape relatively unscathed and to also know exactly what I wanted to do and to be doing that today. So is that something like if you were giving advice to a guy who's going to get out in two or three years, is that something you would tell him? I would say for sure, identify what's important to you so that every, anytime an option become, uh, you know, kind of crosses your plate. You don't have to go, okay, so what is it? Uh, where, where do I have to go? Do I have to move for it? Okay. If I have to move for it, um, uh, what, what, what is that profession all about? And start studying start figuring it out. Uh, if they have ahead of time already figured out what's important to them. Uh, so for me, it was, uh, controlling my schedule, and so the fr freedom to control my schedule and financial freedom. So those were the two things because those would allow me to take care of my family. We have three little kids and the, the middle one has severe special needs and needs full-time care forever. So our mission as a family really is taking care of him for life, making sure he's, he's taken care of. So that kind of, that mission was kind of handed to us, but, uh, I would get all these options and opportunities coming my way as I was transitioning. And it really helped me to be able to say, okay, this one, this one might hit the financial piece, but it doesn't hit that controlling the schedule piece. That way it's an automatic no. So that's all the thought that I had to put into that. So when I have limited bandwidth to deal with, I could focus that bandwidth where it needed to go um, and not worry about, oh, what's this opportunity? What's this opportunity? And then spend a week, week and a half, two weeks discussing with my wife, researching, trying to reach out to people in that profession and figure out if it's uh, it's going to be something that's, that's a, a good next move for me. Well, if you've already established what is important to you uh, ahead of time, then it makes those decisions a lot easier. So when you, during that process, I would imagine a lot of the opportunities that came your way are more related to like security. Uh, some were, but I really wanted to make a clean break from the military. I mean, it was such a huge part of my life, uh, obviously growing up, knowing what I wanted to do. And then uh, we were at a full on sprint for that 20 years I was in, particularly after September 11th. And if you think of it as a pendulum, that pendulum was always on the side of the teams because that's what you owe. Well, that's what you owe the guys, uh, that, uh, uh, that you're leading. It's what you owe their families. It's what you owe the mission, what you owe the country. You have to be solely focused on that task at hand. So everything I did was done to make me, uh, a better seal, a better, better leader. Um, so I was always studying, always, uh, where we're figuring out where we're going to go lessons learned from guys that had been there before, uh, just 
reading after action reports, uh, studying terrorism, studying insurgencies, um, and because that's that, that's it. You have to you have to have that pendulum there. Uh, you know now that uh, the pendulum swung back the other direction. Now it's time to uh, to take care of the family uh, going forward. But that uh, the team is like a is is like your family while you're in. And so uh, making that transition and leaving that behind is is extremely difficult. But uh, you know, I made the choice to to do that and make as clean a break as possible. It'll always be a, a part of me, obviously, and it's a big part of the of, of my novels. But um, but going forward, the the mission really is taking care of my family. So you mentioned your family. Uh, you have a wife and you have kids. Uh, was that difficult to balance while you were in the teams? Well, my wife did all that essentially. I mean, we were we were downrange. We were focused on the mission. You're going downrange with your uh, with your best friends, your teammates, uh, and you're focused on the task at hand. You're focused on that mission. So, without a doubt, the spouses that get left behind have it a lot harder than we do. I mean, they're they're uh, dealing with with diapers and leaky roofs and paying bills, and we're out there doing the job that we love with our best friends to our left and right, just getting after it. So, um, the the people we leave behind definitely have it harder. Um, and so, like I said, there was, there really wasn't a balance. Uh, the balance was that the scale was tipped in favor of the team. Um, and for me, that's just how I had to do it. I'm not saying it's the right way to do it. Other guys could probably find a way better balance, but, uh, for me, that's just how I had to do it. So, uh, as I got ready to to transition and wasn't taking guys downrange anymore, then that scale started to move, uh, towards the other side and towards the family. And that's where it remains today. So as you were finishing up, uh, being that you you are an officer and you're moving up in rank, is like the tail end of your career uh, less combat, or or does that really just kind of depend on the on the individual? I think it depends. So for mine, it was um, when I came back from my last Iraq deployment at the end of 2011. Uh, I went to the training command, so I went to Buds as the operations officer, which is like a, a COO of a, of a company, so day to day operations, um, and uh, then I went. To uh, so I wasn't taking guys down range anymore. And, uh, uh, and I, so I, I it, it did feel different because up until that point, that's all I'd been focused on is doing everything I possibly could to, 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 uh, prepare myself to take the guys down range and make the best decisions I possibly could under fire. Um, being at the training command, you know, it's push-ups, it's sit-ups, it's pull-ups, it's uh, an instructor staff that's very good at what they do, that's uh, <laughs> weeding out those that don't need to, to be in the ranks. Um, and so it was a little little different animal. Uh, and I much, pre- I much prefer being in a platoon, being in a troop, getting ready to go downrange. That was uh, what I came in to do. And uh, that's, uh, that's where I felt most at home in the SEAL teams, was uh, actually in a platoon, in a troop, and uh, deploying. But, uh, but anyway, point being, being, uh, I had a chance to take a breath and I don't think a lot of guys, some guys go right from a combat deployment, uh, to either retirement or transition. If they haven't hit the 20 year mark, they're getting out at the 10 year mark and they're coming off a deployment and they have a couple months to go before they get out. I think that's a lot more difficult. Um, going to the training command allowed me to take a breath, look around and figure out what was important and what I was going to do going forward. So, um, I didn't really make the decision to get out until I got to that training command, although my last deployment to Iraq would be the last one where I'd tactically uh, lead guys on the battlefield, uh, which is what I came in to do. So um, looking back, I guess I always knew I was going to get out after that, but um, but I didn't really think about it until I was home, until I was at that next command. So um, I had, a, had had some time 
to think, to process and figure out what our next move was. And luckily for me, since I was a little kid, I always knew I wanted to write. So that was, that was going to be, uh, that was going to be the next step. So every generation of Americans who are at war, uh, you can go back as, as far as you want. Um, world war one, world war two, obviously the, um, the battles were in humongous scales and a lot of people were fighting at once and a lot of people were dying or getting wounded at one time. And and some of the difficulties those guys faced as far as the deployment was, some of them would be gone for years at a time without coming back. Uh, fast forward to your generation, uh, what you just spoke about, where some guys would go from Iraq or Afghanistan or, or somewhere else in intense combat and then you know, the next day they're home and they're out of the military and they're done with it. And and there's something difficult about that. Um, and so do you feel like part of the process or part of what helped you, uh, aside from knowing what you wanted to do, was just taking a, 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 a break in between the combat and getting out? I think that did help quite a bit. Um and you're right. We had we do have some technological, a lot of technological advantages that uh, that prior generations didn't have. So and that works both ways. So uh, one of those is, you know, I would always think of my grandfather writing a letter to my grandmother from his aircraft carrier, not knowing one, if it would ever make it to her. Uh, and two, if it did, was it going to be six months till she got it a year until she got it. Um, so that's how he communicated with the home front. Um, you know, I had a satellite phone. So no matter how tired I was coming off that battlefield and, you know, wherever it was, Ramadi in particular, I can remember just being so tired when to go to bed. Um, but I would get that cell phone or that satellite phone, uh, you know, stumble out to a part of the compound where I clear line of sight to a satellite and, uh, and a call, uh, even if it was just a quick five minute check in to, to say hello. Cause it was, uh, I figured I owed that to my, to my family. Um, and me and my grandfather couldn't do that. Um, and as far as transitioning back, uh, yeah, World War II, well, World War I, um, certainly, the guys had time to be transported home. They were, for the most part, getting on big transport ships and going across the Pacific, across the Atlantic to get home. So let's just say, for sake of argument, it's like a two-week journey. Um, during that time, they're with guys that had shared experiences overseas. Um, they're not under a constant threat, threat uh, in this case, being on the water uh, of a U-boat attack. Um, they're not in constant threat of uh, being killed, of being uh, a mortar landing on their head or whatever it is. Um, so they can take a breath with guys that had that same shared experience at war for one, two, three, four, however many years that they'd been deployed. Um, and then they get home and then the greatest generation went back to work. So for us, you get on a plane in Baghdad or Bagram and you fly home. Maybe you have crew rest in, let's say, Spain or Germany for a few hours, but then you're landing back in San Diego or Virginia Beach, and you're going to see your family that evening. So uh, less than a day uh, after you're kicking in a door in Iraq or Afghanistan, you are now being presented with a child to change <laughs> that kid's diaper for the first time or whatever it may be. So you point being, you don't have that two weeks of decompression with people 
that have shared experiences um, that let you slowly transition back to a quote unquote normal life. Um, so we didn't have that. You were right back at home and then then the next day you're checking back in at the team, figuring out the schedule and sometimes jumping right back into a platoon, sometimes taking a little leave, but uh, knowing that you're getting back on that train, deploy, train, treadmill. Um, so then let's take that to, to getting out. Um, and same type of thing. You can come from a deployment, from kicking a door to getting home, to jumping in to the transition out of the military process. Um, that does happen. And yeah, certainly that person, uh, when they're downrange was not thinking about for the most part, what they're going to do in their next, in their next chapter in life. They're focused on being the best teammate they can possibly be and, uh, just knocking the mission out of the park. So now they're home, they're juggling the military, trying to figure out this bureaucracy, what paper needs to get signed, what class needs to be taken, what medical stuff they need to do. That's super confusing anyway. Uh, while at the same time figuring out what they're going to do with their life, maybe juggling a family, maybe not. Uh, everybody's transition and situation is a little bit different. But uh, but point being, I do think it is very important to take a breath and be able to take some time to think about that transition. And even better, being able to go through some sort of a transition program that uh, allows to allows you to figure out what's what's important to you, and then also maybe do a couple internships in a few of those. Um, uh, industries that you think you might be interested in. So I think that's very helpful. Earlier, you mentioned, uh, Vince Flynn, uh, as, as he, as you're writing in a, in the same genre. Um, so I've read a lot of his books or maybe all of them, uh, like over the years Yeah, and they were very entertaining, uh, good books. I think he even said at one point, um, he was in a limo with George W. Bush and the president grilled him, asking him who he was talking to. And, you know, I, I guess uh, to how real some of what he was writing about was, uh, even though it was fiction, being someone who's uh, served for as long as you have in special operations. A lot of guys, you hear him talk about how they'll watch military movies and, um, you know, at some point they might turn it off because it's just so not uh, realistic. Uh, do you ever have that type of um, feeling when you're reading some of these novels or particularly like a Vince Flynn novel? Right, right. So, yeah, Vince Flynn, amazing. Um, I mean, he was really the I mean, he's really the master. Uh, and unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But I, I had a chance to meet him once. Uh, he was at he was at Shot Show in I think like 2009. I might be or maybe 10. Anyway, I might be off on that. But um, anyway, sometime around that time, he was at Shot Show in Vegas, and I got to go meet him. I waited till he was all finished and got to spend a little bit of time together as we walked out of out of Shot Show. And those that have been there know that can that can take a while. So it was uh, it was an amazing experience to be able to to spend a little little time with him, um, and it was such an honor for me. But um, uh, so I, you know, I don't let any mistakes that I catch in uh, in novels or movies really bother me because okay. I don't want to be bothered all the time. Right, <laughs> and, right, right. And, you know, particularly, particularly in movies, you know, there's a, there, there's a lot um, that you can. And you could sit there and you could nitpick every single one. Uh, it would be easy to do. But, uh, you know, I, I try to look at it like, hey, is this a good movie? Um, and does the weapons handling and, and the tactics and everything else that I see, um, uh, you know, that, does that enhance it or not? And if it's a little mistake here and there, you know, it's not going to ruin 
ruin it for me. Same thing in a book. And, you know, for authors, I think it's harder today because let's say back in the eighties when I was reading all these guys, uh, there wasn't necessarily a good way to, to check on every little thing. And certainly there wasn't a platform where your readers or critics could get access to you and call you out on every little thing. Right, um, right. so authors that are calling, you know, magazines clips, which was, you know, fairly common. I think it's kind of changing now, but, um, you know, now someone can jump on online on Twitter and blow you up and say, it's yeah. a magazine, not a clip or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, back then they didn't, you know, they didn't know they're trying to write a good story. Um, so I try not to let those, those bother me, particularly if I'm going back and reading things from the sixties, seventies, uh, eighties, early nineties. Um, I certainly don't let it bother me in those. I keep in mind, uh, the time and place, uh, and kind of accessibility and information that was available to, to authors back then. So I tend to, I tend to be, um, uh, qu quite forgiving when it comes to books and movies that, uh, that don't get it quite right. Yeah. Or, um, another one I see a lot is, uh, someone might say, Oh, the weapon had a silencer and then someone comments, it's a suppressor, you know? <laughs> right. Yep, exactly. It's very common as well. So it's, it's tough. Cause then you, and you see all that as an author. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough and they, you know, they don't know, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, I don't let that, uh, otherwise I'd be bothered all the time probably. <laughs> um, could you just give the audience, um, sort of a quick rundown of your book, the terminal list, maybe explain a little bit about the main character and just give them a taste of it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, it's a book about revenge without constraint. And I got the, well, I stayed on track because I read, uh, some, there's a few books by Stephen Pressfield and he wrote, uh, Gates of Fire is probably the one most people are most familiar with, yeah. but he wrote uh, Legend book. of Bagger Vance. Oh, it's amazing. Yep. Uh, also wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. Also, uh, you know, wrote Afghan Campaign. But he has a series of books on creativity. Uh, one's called the art, uh, the art of the war of art. Uh, another one's called the perfect swing or the authentic swing. Uh, another one's do the work. Another one's called turning pro. And they're all similar, um, in that they essentially say the old Nike slogan, just do it. So that's, that's all those books broken down. But in one of them, he mentions that, and I think in his case, it was a typewriter, but he'd put the theme for his novel on a yellow sticky and he'd continually look at that throughout the writing process to stay on track. So I wrote revenge on a yellow sticky and I put it on my computer. And if a chapter, a paragraph, whatever it was, didn't either directly or indirectly lead back to that theme of revenge, then it was out. And I think that really helped when it came to, to edit in that there wasn't that much editing to do because I really stayed on track for that first one. So the, the, the Terminalist is a book about revenge without constraint. And the protagonist is a guy named James Reese uh, who has a background similar to mine. And then he was a prior enlisted Navy SEAL sniper. He becomes an officer. He's a troop commander. And he's doing his last deployment to Afghanistan uh, at the point where we meet him in the story and uh, things start to go south from there. So he is caught up in a conspiracy to test drugs, some beta blockers on our nation's most elite soldiers. Uh, and I got that idea from the church uh, committee hearings that happened in the mid 70s, mm. uh, where some things that the CIA did came to light, right. uh, testing of drugs on some of on soldiers, on people in hospitals, mental institutions, students at universities. Um, so all that came to light and led to some reforms. And I thought, hey, what if what if somebody doesn't get didn't get that memo and they try to do it again and it happens to be on a group of seals and it goes wrong and they need to cover it up. So essentially mm -hmm. it's a, uh, a book about a conspiracy that, uh, that, uh, the protagonist finds himself unwittingly 
caught up in that takes the life of his troop, of his family, and he starts to unravel this conspiracy, comes up with this list, and then starts taking people off that list one by one and putting them in the ground. So what he does really are take the tactics that worked so well against us in Iraq and Afghanistan that the enemy used, and he brings those tactics and techniques to home soil as he works his way to the top of the list, which is includes people at the highest echelons of power. So at one level, it's a basic book about revenge, and I always love books about revenge and movies about revenge growing up. Uh, at another level, it's about a guy that essentially questions and abandons everything that he stood for for his entire life, becoming the insurgent, becoming the terrorist that he'd been fighting. Uh, and at a third level, it's about somebody who is bringing the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan home to U.S. soil and bringing them home to people that have been sending young men and women to their deaths from comfy offices in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. Uh, for almost two decades now. So it has a couple different levels to it, but uh, at its base level, it's just a good, thrilling read. And what would be the best place for people to pick it up if anyone in the audience is interested in reading it? Yep, anywhere books are sold. So whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or a small independent bookstore, wherever they uh, wherever they get their books, that's the place to do it. And it was up for an audiobook award this year for oh, uh, nice. for best uh, yeah best thriller. And uh, a guy named Ray Porter did the uh, audiobook for it, and he's amazing. I think he was, he was on Sons of Anarchy, that uh, motorcycle TV show. Oh, um, nice, yeah. Awesome dude, just such a great guy. So he did uh, did the audiobook, and he'll be doing the audiobook for True Believer as well. And it's available ebook, uh, hardback, paperback, audiobook anywhere books are sold nice you know i've um for a long time i obviously i, I read hardcover or softcover books and then at some point i got a kindle and i started reading ebooks so then for for years i've just read ebooks uh, i know some people can't really do that but i i find it uh, convenient for me um but then the last two books that i've well, I've listened to them. Uh, I got the audible versions of the books, and I actually quite like it. It's kind of it's it was different for me, and I just tried it out, and it, it kind of worked, and I, I kind of like it. Yeah, it's the it's the fastest growing section of publishing, um, and this one's been knocking it out of the park. So it's uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. So now I'm all into the audiobook too. I was just into to reading before, but uh, now that I learn more about the industry and uh, and this whole other new section uh, about uh, on audiobooks, uh, I'm all about it. It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a fun way to experience the novel a different way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you know, Gates of Fire is obviously it's it's a fascinating book. And uh, there's a lot of lessons in it. Um, is that something like like something like the Gates of Fire? Is that something that you would recommend to like a young seal or a young Green Beret or a young Ranger or something like that? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's required reading. That's for sure. I had a reading list for my for my guys, and I'm I'm gonna post it at some point and add to it probably on my my website. Um, there's a bunch of stuff on the website too. If anybody interested is interested in some of the kind of behind the scenes on weapons and gear and that sort of thing, that's uh, you can go deep dive on the website at officialjackcar.com for for those. But um, but yeah, Gates of Fire is definitely a must read for anybody going into the military. And I'd say yeah. probably read it ahead of, read it ahead of time. Uh, don't wait till you're already in. It's a, uh, it's one people should be reading in probably in high school. Yeah, it really is fascinating. I, I read it a couple of years ago and, um, and I don't know why I did this. So last summer I was in Greece and I visited Thermopylae and I, I, I got to see the statue of Leonidas and, and, um, wow. and it was, it's really remarkable. But 
I don't know why I thought this, but I felt like when I got there, it was going to be like, you know, how it was during during the uh, the story where, yeah. you know, it was this tiny, they, they fought the, the Persians at this tiny uh, area where they, they lost the advantage of numbers because only a small amount of people can get in there. So yeah. that was their tactic. And uh, for some reason, I thought it would look kind of similar. So, you know, I have like my, so I do photography and videography as well. So I have my camera, I have my drone and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make this really cool drone video, you know, going through the hot gates and everything. And then when you actually get there, um, so much time has passed the, uh, the shoreline has receded like miles and miles back. So now it's just like completely different. Really? Um, yeah. But some of the mountains are still there. Like those are the same mountains that they were maneuvering to that maneuvering through to get to the hot gates. Uh, so that, that part is cool. But when you get there, it's just like a Thermopylae is just like a small town and it's famous for having the monument to Leonidas and the Spartans. And um, uh, so that part is cool though. They have this really big statue and then maybe um, a few hundred feet to the right of the statue, there's a a, a monument to the uh, the thespians, I think. Um, okay. So it was a pretty cool experience, but I don't know why. For some reason, I thought it would be exactly how it was during those days, you know. And I, it just right. didn't hit me. And then I got there, and I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't the same, you know. Oh no, kid! I'm gonna have to go there. Well, at least it wasn't a. Uh... I don't know, like a, a tourist trap thing selling trinkets or something like that. It was uh, so it was it was actually uh, the, the the terrain was hadn't been taken over by a town or city or hadn't been turned into a, a tourist trap yet. Well, it, it's it is a town, okay, um, but it, it, and I'm sure a lot of people do visit, but it's not like one of those things like going to the Acropolis at in Athens, you know, like um, okay. Like, like to go there, you got to really kind of go out of your way. You have to want to go there, you know? So it's not. Okay. So I think because of that, it's not a huge tourist trap, but they do have like behind it, they have like a museum kind of set up and, you know, you can buy some souvenirs and stuff like that. And and they give you kind of um, some history lessons and background on, on what, what took place. But I would assume most people who are driving out of their way to go there are already pretty familiar with it. Um yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go there someday. That'd be that'd be amazing to see that. Yeah, it it really is, and and it just it's it's kind of cool how they um, the Greeks are, are still appreciate the history and and what their ancestors did. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, it directly impacts us today still. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so it, it was great to finally catch up with you and and uh, and have you on here and, and kind of walk through your story a little bit. Um, so what I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get your book on audible and, um, uh, usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll listen to books on my commute to and from work. Um, so I, now I have my next book, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to do this and uh, I want to thank you for your service as well. Oh, much appreciated. Thanks for the support and thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to our next talk. Yeah, for sure. Anytime.